Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to this special episode of No Really I'm Fine. And it's special because not only is it our final episode of series two, which is obviously really sad, but again, just like last week's episode, if you've listened to last week's episode, we basically, myself and Gemma, it's just us. It's like a bit on RuPaul's Drag Race when they say, just the family here together (laughs) for the final episode of the series when they don't have like any special guests. They just have like... The the originals, <laughs> so it's a bit like that. I've so, only watched season one of RuPaul, yeah. so yeah. basically, <laughs> the, basically, it's like the finale of RuPaul's Drag Race. Yeah, um, and we are the finale. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a very niche reference. And if, <laughs> it is. To, RuPaul's not for it. It's, it's quite it's quite mainstream these days. But anyway, um, so just me and Gemma. Um, last week, if you're listening. Uh, I spoke about um, my story and my journey with mental health, which is obviously still ongoing, as is everyone's, I think, their journeys with mental health is constantly ongoing. But today uh, we're going to speak, I'm going to speak to Gemma, obviously our co- our, my co-host on the show, and and we're just going to talk about each other. So, you know, we'll start, I'll start asking you, uh, you know, uh, as we ask every guest, are you really fine today? Yeah, today is a good day. Um I actually, it's quite um, pivotal really because I had a well-being meeting with my manager earlier today um, about my mental health and, and support work given me at the moment. So yeah, it, it feels like a positive start to the week. So I'm feeling okay today. A well-being meeting. Yeah, well, I had a meeting with, I don't know if you know Sarah Edwards, who's our HR advisor here for the company. Right. And with my lovely manager, Frances Barrett. Um, and... Because I'm quite vocal about my mental health struggles and how that impacts on my workload, um, work have been very helpful in that in that sense and in, in getting me um, a therapy that I might have to wait longer on the NHS. So I'm quite fortunate mm. to have that support. No, that's good. I didn't. I didn't actually know. So yeah, you know, so, I didn't, I didn't yeah. know you could. Anyone listening have. to this right now who works <laughs> for our company? There you go. <laughs> I suppose it is quite good. Actually, it's good that our company does that because not every company offers no. this sort of stuff. No, not definitely not. Um, and I've been in situations where, you know, you're made to feel, I'm not going to obviously name any other businesses or like that or anything, but I have been in situations, unfortunately, where you are made to feel like your mental illness is a problem and not something that should be helped or supported. So it's quite refreshing to work for some, work for a company like Reach PLC to to have that mental illness recognised and, and supported. That's good. Well, so for anyone who didn't listen to last week, basically I spoke about my story um, and this week you're going to speak to us about yours. So I actually, yeah. I don't know a massive amount about your mental health story. I know that the, the extent of which I know is that you spoke um, about your mental health, I think about a year and a half ago, um, at last, not to 2018, 
the um, World Mental Health Day. Is that right? And yeah. You did an article. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, then. Sorry. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, I feel like um, when I'm ready to write about my mental health, it's always at various stages in my life and it's never the whole picture that I've painted or told everyone. Just because so many things have happened to me that I just, it's difficult to write it in one article mm. um, sort of thing. But yeah, I did a piece for the Liverpool Echo in 2018 for World Mental Health Day about um, one of my darkest moments in terms of um, considering suicide, basically. But yeah, I, I mean... I'd like to go back to the beginning, really, of, of, of what happened to me when I was younger and stuff. As as we've heard with a lot of our guests, a lot you know, some of our guests all have different stories, but a, a lot of them seem to have be, been bullied at school. Well, I know a few of them who I've spoken to, and um, that was a that was a theme for me, really. Um, you know, I was I was premature when I was born, and. The doctor basically said to my mum that I shouldn't really be alive. Um, I was supposed to be born in April, but I was born in February. So I was very impatient. Mm. <laughs> but because that, you know, I was fit, I was healthy and I was actually quite um, smart in primary school. But there were certain issues that reflected my body development. For instance, the anxiety was present then and obviously I didn't recognise her as a seven, eight year old. Um, and I used to get bullied for, you know, having bushy eyebrows or anything, having pale skin um, just being a bit more shyer than the other kids. And I would I would resolve that by I used to have a problem with my bladder. So I'd wet, wet myself a lot. So that was obviously more of a target for bullies. And I don't know, in primary school, you know, everyone has the ghost stories, the horror stories, whereas in our primary school, there was like a story going around about how the girls' toilets were haunted. And obviously being a naive young young girl, um, well, not necessarily naive, but, you know, you, you believe anything when you're, when you're little. I did anyway. Mm. I believe that. And I used to get so terrified of putting my hand up in class to ask to go to the toilet because I was so terrified to go to the toilet on my own. But then also the, there would be that anxiety there of, of not wanting to disrupt the class and not wanting to draw attention to my problem even further by asking to go for the toilet so it's constant battle so I used to wee myself a lot in class and you know I'd come home and and obviously mum and dad would know because you know I I would smell Um, and that sort of carried on throughout primary school actually carried on into year seven of high school it was quite quite a big problem but um, it seemed to just go I don't know why Um, obviously when I went to an all-girls school in high school I didn't really believe ghost stories anymore and I was fine to go to the toilet. <laughs> so that that stayed with me. Um, and yeah, my mum and dad made a conscious effort of wanting me to go to an all-girls school. They weren't like pushy parents or anything. I think my dad just was like, keep her away from boys for, for a few years. Uh, and, and, and that was that. So that was just that in a nutshell of my first experience of anxiety, if you like. But obviously then I didn't really recognise it because I've not really talked about it before. I've, I've only ever written about my mental health. So it's... I suppose it is uh, the thing, isn't it? It's, it's one thing to write about. Yeah. It's one thing to write about your mental health issues and, you know, but, you know, talking about it is, is harder because you, you, I suppose you have a bit of a wall yeah. When you write something or you can do it to yourself, actually saying something out loud is, yeah. sometimes, is can be the hardest thing. And that story that I've just told, not m- that many people know that story. I don't even know if I've told Mark, my my partner, that 
that story mm. properly before. So that's quite a big thing for me to share that with you and, and yeah. to all our listeners. So that's why it feels good. So yeah, high school went fine. I did great. Went to college. That was great. Um, and then went to university and just I just seemed to be excelling through my academic life because I seem to have this like fear ingrained into me from an early age of not wanting to fail and not wanting to embarrass myself um so I just literally plowed myself into working hard and being a swat and being a nerd and all those bullying terms I used to get called um but obviously in college I met my first boyfriend um at the age of 16 and all that started and yeah, I was in a relationship with, with him for three years. And obviously this was my first experience of a relationship at 16. So I thought what I was going through was was quite normal. Um, I didn't think it was, you know, anything wrong with your boyfriend laying hands on you or controlling you to the point where you couldn't see your friends anymore. I just thought that was because I've not had a boyfriend before and because I went to an all-girls school, all my friends who I hung out with, you know, we were like part of like the geeky gang, so we didn't really think about boys or, you know, have experience of boys like the popular girls did. So we didn't really, I didn't really have any reference to, you know, what it was like to be in a relationship, you know, in, in our day and age. And obviously my mum and dad's relationship were great and stuff, but I just, I was so consumed by like the thought of I was in love with this person that, I didn't really recognise the signs and I suppose you don't, you know, when, when that takes over and, and that's such an early age. But it came to the point where I went on my first holiday with this person and we went away with his family. And obviously that's a big thing for someone, like going away on, on a plane the first time. So I was very scared, but also very excited at the same time. But it got to the point where one day me and this person had a big argument Um and he actually locked me in a hotel room for three hours. Um, and I couldn't get out. And I was screaming and crying. And I literally, after he came and got me, I had to lie to the rest of the family and just pretend we just had an argument and just had to, because I was so scared of what he was going to do to me. And then after that holiday experience, I came home and that pr- the relationship pretty much ended there. So I'm sort of talking about events that sort of led up to the anxiety increasing and, and the depression diagnosis. Um, so yeah, I've lost my train of thought now. Um, but I know, is it, it, you know, the, the being in sort of controlling relationships can be very damaging on someone's mental health because, you know, like, you know, those those three hours that you were in a hotel room probably seemed like the longest three hours in the world yeah I was I was um 18 um I was scared I was in a country didn't know um and I just I I was more just you know scared of not revealing anything to this person's mum and dad Mm. I was more worried about that which is quite quite a a weird way to think do you know what I mean rather than worry about your own safety I was just terrified of I was worried about my own safety but I was just terrified of revealing anything and causing more upset to this person than than myself and was that sort of that sort of controlling relationship was that something which had 
gone on for a long period of time. Yeah, but I felt like it got worse. Like the the, the boundaries got um, more stricter. So I didn't see my friends for a few months and I lost many friends because of that relationship. Mm. Um, I just seemed to be spending more time at this person's house than, than my own. Um, but yeah, after that holiday experience, I eventually broke out of that. I do I don't it's all a blur to me. I don't know how I got up got the courage to even do this. But I actually went round to this person's house and ended the relationship to their face rather than mm. over text or anything like that. And it was the hardest thing I've done, but what followed after that was just a torment of abuse and almost stalking. Um but yeah, that that was that and then Fast forward a few few years, um, I graduated from, from university. I had a few relationships in between then. Obviously not as bad as that previous one, but none of them didn't really work for various reasons. I think that was mainly because I was quite damaged and I was just didn't trust anyone anymore. So yeah, I, I actually um, graduated from Liverpool John Moores in 2014 um, in a degree in journalism. And I got a job two days before I actually graduated in Lancaster to be a trainee reporter for the Lancaster Guardian and the Visitor Newspaper in Morecambe and the Lancashire Post in Preston. So yeah, moved up there, not a care in the world, didn't really realise what I was doing because I didn't know anyone in Lancaster. Didn't, it was the first time that I've ever lived away from my mum and dad because when I went to university, because I'm from the Wirral, I just stayed at home. Mm. So it was a big step for me, but... As always, which has been a theme throughout my life, I respond to the way I respond to change is very delayed. Like, I'll just go with flow and then I'll realise, shit, <laughs> I've actually done this. And then, like, then the fear and everything else sets in. Like, that reaction's delayed. So I did all that. Um, and then it was one, one morning when I was in my flat in Lancaster. It was on a Friday morning. I was used to being work at nine. And I woke up about, well, I woke up before my alarm went off and I thought I was having a heart attack because I woke up sweating and I couldn't breathe. Like I was really like struggling to breathe and my chest was really tight and like, I just, I just couldn't get my breath. So I just remember nearly fainting off the bed to try and grab my phone to die. And I pressed nine, nine, and then I started to breathe again. And obviously this was my first experience of a panic attack. Cause, but I've not ever, I've never had a panic attack, so I didn't know what it was at all. Um, and I had to go into work, and I was talking to my boss at the time, and, and she said that sounds like a panic attack and stuff. So that was obviously my first experience of it, and it was terrifying. And then I just lived in fear of when the next one was going to be because I was like, I couldn't breathe. And then after that, for all that year, I had about. I had about 20 panic attacks in a year. Some of them quite horrific to the point where I was in um, Primark with my mum shopping and it was just really, you know what Primark's like. Mm. <laughs> it wasn't the one in Liverpool, it was the one in Chester. And um, yeah, we just, we were walking through and I just literally stopped and couldn't breathe in the middle of the floor and staff had to go and get a chair for me and it was it was very embarrassing but um it happened and 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 that was that really um so that was my feel like experience of panic attacks so as I was saying to you at the start of the episode 
a lot of things from my life have been like peppercorn through like leading up to like where I'm gonna go with this anyway. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, I just feel like I'm ranting to you, Michael. But um, <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Um, <laughs> I have like all these lists of things in my head that I wanted to talk about. Um, so yeah, that was that, and then I was I was at Kendall Calling Music Festival. Um, in my it was the second year I went, and I was covering it for for the paper. And you know what it's like. You have a you have a couple of drinks. Um, so I had a couple of drinks. And then I got a photo, I noticed on my phone, I had like five missed calls off my mum. And I was like, oh, so So I listened to the voicemail and the signal was quite bad there. And she said, oh, you need to, you need to ring me right now. So I was like, oh, okay. Um, And I answered it and I was all like happy, like, yeah, yeah. I was like, hi mum, you okay? And then she was just like, are you sitting down? And I was like, so, and then I just remember me holding on to Bethany and I was like, and everything just like slowed, slowed right down. She said, um, "Your your uncle, um, he, he's dead." And I was just like, "What?" And I started laughing, like, because I was like, I think it was because of the shock. Mm. And she was like, "Yeah, your uncle's killed himself." Um, and I just remember crumbling to the floor, and yeah, like to hear that. You know, it's interesting. We've heard so many people talk about having suicidal thoughts um and i've i've had them um later on in life um but we've not really talked about the impact of you know suicide that and how that impacts someone else's mental health you know if you've lost someone to suicide um so that really affected me um for for quite a while afterwards it still does now that was in 2016 um you know, it's always that question of why and and why didn't you talk to me about if you mm. were struggling? Um, and yeah, I, I don't know if this, just, I can't say, I don't know if this stat's right, but I have read somewhere, you know, if someone in the family commits suicide, you are more likely to think about suicide yourself. I don't know if that's correct. Um, don't quote me on that, but I have read that somewhere. Mm. Um, and I sort of became a bit obsessed with it. I came obsessed with wanting to know what he did, wanting to know how, wanting to know why. All these things, I came very obsessed um, to the point where I started to think about it more when I was going through panic attacks and when I was constantly not being able to switch off the worrying about everything. Since I was little, I've always had worrying, worried thoughts. I've had about, you know, if someone looks at me, I'll go, they hate me. Or if someone, you know, says, doesn't get back to me by text, I'll go, oh, what have I done? I've pissed them off. Mm. Or, you know, little things like that that all build up. You know, worry about money, worry about everything. Everything, like, is just constant in my mind. So it got to the point where I was thinking, I'm just, I just want to go to sleep and wake up and not have to worry about anything. So the only way I can do that is to just go to sleep forever. Um, And it wasn't like I had a thought telling me, you should go and kill yourself. It was like a thought of, let's get rid of this pain because I can't continue anymore. Um, and my first, as, as you were referencing the article I wrote, my first experience of this um, was late at night, um, a couple of years ago in 20, I can't remember, 2017, 2018, yeah. Um, my, I used to live with my mum and dad 
and um, I, I, I live with my partner Mark now. But, um, yay! <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he. We have a German Shepherd Labrador dog. She's called Kaya. She's an old lady now. Um, she's ten. Um, but yeah, he normally takes her out around the block at around about quite late at night, about half ten, just before he, you know, um, we all go to bed so she can do her business. Um, but obviously, the nature of our work, we write about a lot of well, I don't know about yourself, Michael, but I'm sure you have. Mm. Write about a lot of horrible stories like crime and caught and and you know people being stabbed unfortunately people being murdered you know so I love my job but I sometimes am guilty of taking my work home with me and I can't switch off so I used to get terrified when my dad used to go around the block with the dog because I used to think my brain would just go he's gonna die he does not gonna come back he does gonna get stabbed dog's gonna get run over and then your dad's gonna get run over He's not coming back. He's not coming back. And I was trying to sleep and I couldn't rest until I heard my dad turn the key and I couldn't. And normally it only takes about 10 to 15 minutes, but I couldn't, this this one particular night, I couldn't switch it off. And it got to the point where I woke up, like woke up out of bed trying to not, um, after not being able to go to sleep and I was sweating and I was standing there shaking like, because these thoughts wouldn't shut up. And I and I was about to go downstairs, uh, and I, I can't even remember doing this, but I was about to go downstairs and just take loads of tablets, but then my dad turned the key in the door. And he was like, are you okay? And yeah, I was like, I'm okay, I'm going back to bed. And as soon as I heard him in the house, I just fell asleep. But, and it terrified me to think that I was that close over, over what? Over a fear of something that's not going to happen or a fear of something that I've just made up in my head. Mm. So I was terrified. So I was like, what the hell's wrong with me? Um, so that happened. and But I suppose the only good thing for me was the thought of me hurting myself scared me so much that I'd never acted upon it. Um, and I know a lot of other people are different and it works in many different ways for many other people. I'm sort of guessing at this time you'd never sort of gone and looked to professional help or advice or that, you know, the take no. to the doctors or anything like that? Or? Well, yeah, sorry, I should have mentioned earlier. So when I was in Lancaster in 2015, I got diagnosed with chronic anxiety and depression. Mm. So that's when my medication started with antidepressants. I actually went to the doctor's because of the panic attacks and from advice from my from my boss at the time is actually like my mum um she's called Debbie I'm sure she won't mind me mentioning her but she was such a big help to me because obviously it was hard for me to be away from my mum and dad because I'm a very I'm very close to my family so she was like my sort of surrogate mum in Lancaster and you know really helped me through those difficult times of panic attacks and um it was her advice to 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 go to the doctor and I'm, I'm glad I did because the doctor that I had in Lancaster was just such a lovely lady. Um, I could tell she understood straight away because um, it took me all my courage to even talk about it. And I was physically shaken when I was talking about it because I just thought, I don't know, I had this thing in my head that they're not going to believe me and they're going to think I'm just talking a load of nonsense and they're not going to have heard of this thing called panic attack because I, I, I read some of it online after I um, had it and sort of, just put two and two together and I was thinking oh she's not going to believe me she's not going to believe me she's going to think I'm a weirdo she's going to tell me 
to get out for to stop wasting my time and all that that's going around in your head and you you know and you could just be looking at someone now couldn't you in the waiting room at the doc in the doctors mm. you don't know what's going on inside the head so that's what was going on inside my head I couldn't so when I normally talk out loud to someone it's almost like Bleh. <laughs> so um yeah so sorry yeah I was I was diagnosed in 2015 with chronic anxiety and depression um but yeah something that's changed for me recently um is we've never really talked about how mental illness can change over time especially if you have like a long-term psychological mm. condition um i'm in the process of getting re-diagnosed at the moment which is what work is helping me with quite a lot and i'm thankful for it because i haven't had a panic attack for quite a while now and I have had various treatments with CBT therapy. Um, that didn't really work for me. I know it's great for others, you know, others might think it's great um, and that's fine. But for me, it wasn't really helpful. However, sorry, it was helpful short term. It wasn't helpful long term for me. Um, for those of you who don't know what CBT is, it's cognitive behavioural therapy. And it's, in a nutshell, it's like training your brain to think more positively and think think you know in a different way and putting those mechanisms in place to understand what you're thinking isn't real and and and, and things like that with anxiety it mainly looks at um so I had that and it made me recognize the signs and, and the symptoms of my anxiety and and that was really helpful in, into associating okay this is this isn't really real right now so it, it did work but long term I sensed there was other underlying issues with my mental illness um and then obviously the the story where i referred to um me wanting to take my own life when my dad was out that sort of was how it exacerbated over the years over time it started out with panic attacks and worrying thoughts and it's exacerbated into that now um but what changed for me really was um sorry one second So my mum became poorly last year. Um, it was about, she uh, she went to Tenerife with my dad in May last year. It was like for their wedding anniversary, the 29th wedding anniversary. It's the 30th this year, so it was a big year for us. Mm. Um, and she became quite poorly afterwards. She only went for a week and we thought she had gastritis because she couldn't stop being she couldn't stop vomiting and go in the toilet sorry sorry guys um but yeah so she, she went to the doctors they gave her some antibiotics she was fine for a few days but then it went back to normal and it was this long long-winded process of um you know going to hospital figuring out what's wrong having some x-rays going to Arrow park being transferred to real Liverpool, and it we they had she had a scan and it showed on her pancreas there was a, a weird, they, they say abnormal, abnormal and not anomaly or whatever the term is. That's what they said to us and said it could be cancerous. So obviously that was a big blow. But we, I was still, in the back of my mind, I was still hopeful that it might not be cancer. Cancer, it could just be, they just might just be saying that to, you know, think of the worst for us so then everything will be okay. Mm. Um, And they were like, so what we're going to do is we're going to operate, we're going to open your mum up 
and we're going to hopefully remove that part of our pancreas because you can live without your pancreas. And then hopefully we'll just keep an eye on that if it is cancer. Turned out obviously it was cancer. Um, it's quite a big tumour on her pancreas and on her spleen. And your spleen doesn't actually do anything in your body. It's just there by your pancreas. And for instance, well, I think it does, I think it regulates white blood cells because it's often taken out when someone's had a car, car, bad car crash. Mm. So that was all where it was. And they were hopefully going to operate. So they, so they operated. Um, it was a very, very intense procedure. And we were very worried at Royal Liverpool. Um who were amazing, by the way. Um, but the gave us the worst news and it was the most horrible day of my life. Um, yeah, we... Obviously, mum was in and out. We went to go and see mum first. She was in and out, so she didn't really know what was going on. But she obviously recognised us and, and stuff. So we were like, hi, mum. I was in a lot of pain. She was in, like, a special unit in Royal Liverpool where only, like, you were allowed two visitors at a time. My brother was in work this day. Um, so it was just me and my dad. This was this was in August now, by the way, um, of last year. And I remember the surgeon who actually performed my mum's surgery being there with a woman. And they were like offering to take us to the room, to a room. And I was thinking, I know what's going to happen. Like, I've seen this in films. I've seen enough to know, to understand this situation. But even so, I had tight hold of my dad's hand. Um, we walked to the room and I was just looking at this woman. We sat down. I was thinking, why are you here? Like, who are you? Like this, obviously this nurse. I was like, it's him. We want, this is a surgeon we want to speak to. But I understood why she was there because the surgeon basically said there's nothing that we can do. Um, he said, unfortunately, the cancer spread um, in your mum's bowel and stomach, and it's all now going to be about managing your mum's life. And obviously the surgeon just says it as a matter of fact, it's his job, but I just remember just, I broke down, I just cried. I just, me and my dad cried, Um and I had this overwhelming sense of guilt to because I was like, here's me, you know, contemplating suicide and my mum hasn't got a choice of whether she lives or not. Mm. Um, and that's not fair. And I had that horrible, I had that horrible um, sense of guilt that uh, <coughs> that I could even go through that um, and put my family through that stress and then yeah here's my mum just dealt with this awful blow and that's very selfish of me I suppose it's like it's interesting because in a way you may see it as being selfish but actually this is probably not the right word but actually it's a really I think really interesting way of of looking at you know if you're having these thoughts that actually look, I, you know, th those words you just said have probably stick with me for a while where you just said, well, actually, you know, like I'm contemplating, I have these really bad thoughts, but actually my mum doesn't have that choice. And yeah, and that's, and I know it sounds weird to say this, but for, if that was me, I'd use that to cling on to, yeah. to, to keep sort of positive thoughts to my, to, to myself about, you know, if I was struggling with my depression so much that actually, you know, that, that actually to have that that piece of thing to say I must cling on for yeah. my mum, you know. And and that's how it's changed for me recently. Um 
you know, I've just done everything for my mum and just been there a lot for her. Um, and, you know, she's been through chemo now. She's lost her hair. She's been through chemo, but she's put weight back on. Um, she's doing really well. And we're, wait, we're waiting for a scan on the 24th because we think some of the cancer's diminished from her stomach and bowel. So we're, we're very positive. Um, and, you know, they, they don't they don't know the lifeline of, of, of my mum. Um, you know, even if they did, I don't know if I'd want to know. I wouldn't mm. want to know. Um, so, yeah, we're... we're We've been through a lot as a family, but you know we're, we're we're trying to cling on to the positive. It's just my anxiety won't let me in terms of worrying about when I'm going to lose my mum. Um, that won't go away, and I suppose that's normal for anyone going through what I'm going through. You know, it's a worry, and you know my mum's only fifty-two, I'm only twenty-seven. It's it's quite a young age. Um, I mean, it's horrible to lose any parent at any age, mm. but. Um, so yeah, it's just that worry of how, what's my mental health going to be like when I do lose mum. Um, and that's just the way my brain works. It's just so annoying that I worry about something that's not even happened yet. It's just so frustrating. And I can't just... Obviously, you know, when I'm around my mum, I'm, I'm, I'm happy and I, I would never want to, you know, make life negative for her because that's, that's not what I want to do. But, you know, after I've been around my mum and... I go home. I just, I just break down then because I can. So, mm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, is is you know like it sounds like sometimes you've you know is, is there anything that you've picked up along the way that has helped you sort of cope with this or is the stuff that you know you've you said you didn't really have a great time with CBT so yeah you know was there anything that you learned outside of CBT or maybe something that you've learned doing these podcasts or anything like that because I because I remember you sort of when your mum wasn't well and we, we were we were going through you know series one we were finishing series one of this podcast so I mean was there anything that you've sort of picked up which is sort of stuck with you for that time um that sort of pushed you through yeah just before I say it everyone's different so you know what yeah. works for me doesn't necessarily work for others um I've never it's quite weird because I've never been like a sport fan I was never good at school I was always always that person that no one wanted to be on the team and I dropped the egg on uh, spoon day but um I found the gym really helpful um I joined one in Lancaster and it was quite a nice community and that sort of carried on with me when I moved back to the world and I just found that when I'm at the gym, all I concentrate on is what I'm actually doing. I don't have time to be worrying about anything else because I'm on the treadmill and I want to do ten minute a 10-minute run. And then I want to go and do some weights. And then I want to go and do this. So I have that in my head and I think, okay, I've got an hour. I want to do this, this and this. And I want to do this, do this many calories on this run. Or I want to I want to do this next and, and, and stuff. So that's helped me in terms of just forgetting about something for an hour and, and training my brain to not think about anything but running or or whatever I'm doing in the gym mm. that's that's been a massive help for me um it sounds cliche because you know we always say this but the biggest help for me is talking about it like the first time I told my mum and dad they were just so supportive well they, they didn't understand completely but you know they they were supportive nonetheless and the first time I spoke openly about it on social media was was huge like I wasn't expecting the response I did because I still have that fear of thinking everyone's gonna think I'm a weirdo <laughs> um but Twitter for example has been a, a massive lifeline it's so 
it's so nice to to get support and even if I am like you know because most of the time I, I don't want to talk about my mental health and from having a crap day so I just tend to write a tweet and um I used to think that I used to be terrified of doing that because I used to think, oh, people think I'm attention seeking or, or just just wanting attention and stuff. But I've started to do that, and people actually respond, and people actually message me who actually care, and that's just nice. Mm. And it's just nice to have that sort of communication and bond with certain people in the mental health community. Um, obviously, you know, there's pros and cons to social media, but I've found over the years that's really helped helped me. Last week, um, yes. Well, the last episode we did, um, you set me a challenge. I did, yes. <laughs> you set me a challenge to sort of, um, you wanted me to sort of take care of myself a bit more, which obviously I do, but you know, a bit more, which is fine. So I have been, which is great. So, um, I do just obviously just listening to your story there, I do sort of, I've thought of something which I could set for you as a challenge. Okay, <laughs> I think some a way that sort of I manage my worries so managing sort of oh I'm I've got this this worry here and I'm overthinking this that and the other is sometimes I don't allow my head the space for the worry yeah in a in a positive way not that I'm so I'm not that I'm overworking my brain it's yeah what I'll do is a bit like what you said when you go to the gym you, you can only really focus on going to the gym you can only really focus on doing those sort of things so what I think might be quite good is maybe finding something else as I don't know what else you do in your sort of life it could be something maybe you could do with your mum yeah or maybe something you could do with your boyfriend or something you could literally just do for yourself by yourself and being sort of a regular part of your life to have that sort of build of a community yeah so like you know I don't I don't know what works for you you know it could be you know, people sort of do those park runs on a Saturday and things like that. Or, you know, like some people might join a choir or do you know what I mean? Like, you know, something like that. You know, like people, everyone's different. But I'd quite like to see you sort of finding somewhere to channel a bit of worry into... Because I know that for me, like I know I talked about this a lot last week, was that I find a way, so when I have my anxiety and I have things like that, I find a way to channel that into something, so to cope with it. So when I do, like, things with my theatre, I can only think about the theatre. Yeah. When I go and do my gym, I don't do, I don't I don't go in the, the gym as itself. I do all the classes. Mm. So when I'm doing, and I choose the gym classes that force me to think about doing that gym class. And even yeah. if it's just for an hour or for an evening, it's getting me away from those thoughts or... Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, there are loads of choirs on the Wirral. I'm not saying that's what you have to no do. No one but, wants to hear me sing. But you know what I mean? Like, do you know what, but something, yeah. you know, like something which you could do, um, people do. I, I, I don't yeah. massively know what you yeah. quite like to do, but. I quite like to do yoga and I used to do that quite a lot, but I haven't done it. But yeah. now that I work from home, <laughs> yeah, it's a perfect opportunity to sort of do that because I've got a yoga mat and everything. So well, I do I mean. need to get back into that. Well, just, I think just something to allow you to, hopefully manage your worry on a certain because like I, I know I know, and this was I suppose this might be an interesting about your relationships as well because you know that you sort of if you see that someone 
all the time and not all the time but if you're seeing them in the evenings and stuff like that and things like that you can go so actually this is my time now so yeah. you can go away do you know not <laughs> oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you can go and play uh, FIFA upstairs while I we actually did that on Saturday yeah. um so you know that's why I'm quite lucky to have such a supportive partner really because my friend best friend came round and we watched the Taylor Swift documentary on Netflix on Saturday night and had had a few gins and Mark just stayed upstairs and played FIFA and then came down to sleep on the sofa while me and Bethany slept in our bed so <laughs> yeah um yeah he 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 is great and he d- he does give me that space when I need it um but ultimately he, he's there when I need him as well and I'm quite lucky to have finally found someone who loves me for who I am. Cheesy, but yeah. <laughs> if you've been affected by anything you've heard in today's episode, you can get the proper advice you need. We aren't experts, but the Samaritans provide free, confidential support for people experiencing feelings of distress or despair. You can phone them 24 hours a day on 116123 or visiting thesamaritans.org.uk. The Diana Award also provides a crisis messenger service which gives young people 24-hour crisis support across the UK. If you are a young person in crisis, you can text DA for free to 85258. That's DA to 85258.